WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Wildlife crime is the fourth largest criminal network globally. It's actually worth up to $20 billion. To tell us more about wildlife crime, we're here to talk to Elena Green about her research on wild meat trafficking. Elena, can you please tell us more about yourself and your research? Thank you for having me. I am currently a senior undergrad at Michigan State University. And for the past two years, I've done research with Dr. Meredith Gore, who specializes in conservation criminology, which kind of represents a nexus within human nature relationships. So wildlife crime kind of sits within the field of conservation criminology, and that exists within the nexus between criminal justice and natural resource management and risk and decision science. And the research that I've been doing within that field is looking at how men and women play roles within urban wild meat trafficking in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Thanks for joining us today, Elena. This is actually the first time that I've heard about wildlife criminology happening in a research setting. Could you explain what you mean by a wild meat and how does that differ across borders? Sure. Wild meat is a term I use instead of the term bushmeat due to colonialistic reasons. And wild meat can be defined as meat from wildlife species that are hunted for human consumption. So this also has like a level of legal ties with it because most wild meat is considered illegal to eat or consume. But a lot of times the people who are consuming these types of meats are in impoverished situations and that's kind of their last resort. And a lot of the research I've been doing in regards to that is the shift from this consumption of wild meat being out of necessity into consumption out of desire or want because it's shifting into urban markets where there's a higher element of choice in terms of like what people can or cannot choose to eat. I know that various countries defined wild meat differently. How is it defined over in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Wild meat is generally defined by whatever wild species is there. So if we wanted to say that a deer in the United States was hunted illegally, that would be considered wild meat in terms of my definition for it. And if you're looking at the DRC, there's primarily like antelopes that are being traded, but there's also instances of primates or dwarf crocodiles or pangolins and even kind of a broad spectrum of different species that are being traded that are basically on a country by country basis. But I think as long as it's from the wild, it's going to be considered wild meat. Just to define the acronym for our audience, the DRC is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Geographically, where on the African continent is the DRC located? And what makes the state interesting to research in regards to wild meat illicit trafficking? The Democratic Republic of Congo, or the DRC, is right next to Rwanda, and it's in the middle of Africa. And what makes it really interesting is that some of the more prominent cities within the DRC, such as Brazzaville or Kinshasa, are kind of known for their bushmeat cuisine. So a lot of times, even though like wild meat is considered illegal to have or to consume in these areas, it's become like such an ingrained part of the culture that a lot of law enforcement kind of doesn't take it as seriously as you would want them to, given the scope of the industry. So being able to look at an industry that is essentially unregulated, but is still continuing to thrive and is especially thriving in these urban environments is really interesting. 
earlier, you had mentioned that you're particularly focusing on how men and women play roles in the urban wild meat trafficking in the DRC. What are the differences in their roles and why do you think it exists? So I'm still kind of trying to figure that out with my research. There seems to be a general misconception of women's involvement in wildlife crime in general, just because a lot of times women aren't being included in criminal analysis or even in conservation interventions that are directed towards stopping wildlife crime or kind of diminishing the scope of it. What I'm finding so far is that the roles that men and women have within urban wild meat markets is very dependent on what roles that these individuals are holding. So whether they're being a trafficker or a seller, it's definitely like skewed in terms of like when women are more involved and when men are more involved. And it also even goes down to a species level within our study. And it's trying to figure out different pieces of this puzzle on seeing where there's correlations and where there's not. You talked a little bit about how different things can lead to these misconceptions of gender roles in illicit trafficking, like how seriously law enforcement take women whenever they're investigating these wild meat crimes. What are other factors that are playing a role into feeding into these misconceptions? I think generally one of the things that's feeding into these misconceptions is trying to identify a motive and also trying to identify what a offender profile looks like for a woman that's involved in wildlife crime. Because definitely it depends on what kind of wildlife crime entity you're looking at. Because a woman who is engaging in ivory trafficking, I would assume, would look different than a woman who's engaging in urban wild meat trafficking. But there's not enough research currently that's out there giving this kind of narrative about what a female offender looks like within this industry. And that's kind of what my work is trying to do, at least within our study sample within the DRC, within urban wild meat markets. In a previous episode of The Sci-Files, we had discussed how transgender murders are misrepresented in the media. The media sometimes does not correctly identify the gender of these transgender victims, and that leads me to wonder, does the DRC correctly profile the gender of these offenders in wildlife criminology? I'm unsure of how they're profiling because I believe that LGBT plus representation that we have in the United States is not reflected as heavily in the DRC. So there isn't as strong of an acceptance for members of that community. So from the data that I have, it's been strictly male, female, but taking into consideration gender as a spectrum, that's something I want to investigate as I'm going forward, like within my graduate studies, within different areas and within different contexts to see what's there, because that's even smaller scope of the whole wildlife crime sector. Thanks for clarifying that. It makes sense that it could be more difficult to assess this misgenderizing issue since the culture isn't nearly as accepting there for LGBTQ people. How does your research group collect data on wild meat trafficking? Does it work with agencies within the DRC or is this part of a larger international effort? It's really cool, but the project is partnered with the Wildlife Conservation Society or WCS. And there's a team that's stationed in the DRC who routinely go out to markets and do market surveys. And then they report back to a central data keeper who basically inputs like what products were being handled, who was there for like routine offenders, what was the gender of the person involved, what time of day was it. And then they basically put that into a giant Excel sheet and then they send it back to my PI and I. And then we basically go through and sort and analyze the data. I'm happy that you're working with the WCS on this and that there's a team in the DRC that's doing these market surveys for you and sending the data. 
that must make life a lot easier for you to not have to go all the way over there during a pandemic to get your data. Do these market surveys consider data from local law enforcement? As I mentioned before, the legal intervention pertaining to wildlife crime, specifically within the DRC, is very limited. I remember I have one picture where these individuals are trading pangolin scales right in front of a police truck station. So there's very little consequence for engaging in wildlife crime. And that's one of the reasons why it's a very growing industry is because it's very low risk in getting a severe punishment, but there's a lot of high reward in the amount of money that you can get from engaging in this enterprise, essentially. So all of the data that we have comes from our team and they go into the markets and do surveys. So they'll just be kind of looking and seeing what markets are or what vendors are there and what they're selling. And then also just see who's purchasing it, who is bringing in like fresh product. And then they'll just report this back to a central data keeper who sends us the data. How open are these markets to people? Does the team directly interact with shopkeepers or the vendors? Or do they watch from a distance taking notes about different engagements that they observe? And is there a risk to doing these surveys? From my understanding, because I'm not familiar with everyone who's on the team, it's not like, say, if I were to walk into a farmer's market with a clipboard, it's never that upfront about everything. It's more covert. So I believe they have their own system of tracking like what species are available and they go at different times throughout the day. And I believe that the team also includes individuals from the DRC, so it's a little bit easier to be more discreet about everything. It's definitely not like you're just walking into the market and just saying, hey, do you have this? Do you have this? It's very much more a system that they have about what species are there, and they do it very coverted. So they're never in too much of a risk of being caught just because it's more of a discreet thing than just having a clipboard and making like tick marks on everything. But I'm also not 100% sure on their exact system because I'm here and obviously not there. That makes sense. I believe people would be pretty nervous if someone was just walking around with a clipboard ticking off boxes. That kind of reminds me of a food inspector. So talk more about your data. I'm wondering what time range is your data from? Also, when the team is conducting these market surveys, are they focusing only on the market or are they also looking at maybe the transportation of the meat as well? I have data from November 2018 to February 2019, and that's what I've been utilizing. But I know the team is still there and it's collecting data for other studies that WCS conducts. And from the data that I'd have, I'd assume that they're also looking into what modes of transportation are being used to move these products and also what people are using to essentially transport these products as well. So one of the things that I found through my analysis is that there's a very strong correlation between female offenders and utilizing the bus. And this gives us an inclination to think that the women that are involved within this industry are from a low income area or they're using the wild meat as a means of extra income because someone who is impoverished wouldn't just ride the bus unless they were going for their job or they had to be on the bus for some reason because that's an extra expense. So we either have to believe that the women that are involved within this industry who are utilizing the bus are doing it either as a means of primary income or as a means of secondary income that is still located within the city landscape. When anyone thinks about the classical patriarchal gender roles that have persisted in most societies for centuries, it's usually the man that brings in the food 
or income while the woman takes care of the house through cooking or cleaning. While Western society has been shifting away from this to become more equitable, are we seeing the same behavior happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo? Does this patriarchy still dictate how illicit trafficking is done, or is there more involvement from women? I think sometimes the patriarchal influences still persist, such as predominantly men are the ones who are hunting the meat and women are often the ones who are preparing it. But there's also different elements within the supply chain for urban wild meat markets in the DRC that change those gender roles a little bit. So that we have instances where women are trafficking the meat at same rates as men and women are specializing in certain species products and I think there needs to be more investigation within other urban markets, within other countries, to be able to have a full encompassing view of whether the patriarchy is persisting in the DRC or not. But I think it's definitely by a case-by-case basis for our understanding of how patriarchy is or is not persisting within this environment. For one example of that is there's a species of crocodilians that are called dwarf crocodiles. And within our study sample, Besides the actual hunting of the animals, women are almost in complete control of that aspect of the supply chain for this species. And I think our rudimentary understanding of crocodiles would lead many people to assume that it's a very vicious animal, so men would be more inclined to engage within this industry than women would. And I think that even reflects like our own like ingrained patriarchal understanding of wildlife crime and wildlife crime involvement. And I think seeing women engage within this industry with the dwarf crocodiles and becoming essentially experts on this species as a whole is really interesting and gives us a glimpse into what we can see women do as offenders of wildlife crime. I recognize that I am privileged because I can make the choice of what I'm able to eat. I can choose whether to have a vegan or vegetarian lifestyle versus eating meat because of my economic situation. What are some things that can be done to make the situation more equitable in the DRC so that people don't have to rely on eating wild meat, which can lead to a spillover of disease across species that can also be a threat to biosecurity? I think one thing that can be done is a shift to more sustainable farming methods and basically accounting for the income of these individuals because the income is significantly less than what we see here in the United States. And it's hard to project like our very Western view of wildlife and of conservation because a lot of times I think we tend to separate animals and people from conservation conversations. And it's very impossible to do both to be able to have like effective intervention strategies. And within the DRC, many of the individuals within rural environments and sometimes within urban environments are eating this meat out of necessity. And where it's becoming a problem is that there are the individuals in the urban environments who have the choice of what they want to eat and are choosing to eat the wild meat. So I think having a better understanding of these species for the individuals that are in the DRC who have this choice, as well as creating more sustainable protein alternatives such as like lentils or soy, something that's easy to grow and something that is cheap to purchase would help deter the need to consume these products. It's a shame that leaders don't consider how their own situation can bias their decision making. When working with non-Western nations, people believe that there's a one-size-fits-all solutions to these complex problems, and this eventually just leads to failure to fixing the problem, 
As we're wrapping up this interview, could you tell our audience what motivated you to pursue this research and what plans do you have for the future? It's a really interesting story how I got into this field. I had kind of gone through a quarter-life crisis like five years early, and I was originally on this path to go into veterinary school, and my whole intention of my undergrad career was to go to vet school, and I was losing passion within that field. And at that time on MSU's research website for different positions, there was this position that was looking for someone who was fluent in French and knew ArcGIS, which is like a geographic computer programming system. And at the time, I didn't know either, but I applied anyway because I was in something that to me resonated with kind of like this perfect subject that meshed like planet Earth and CSI together. And that's conservation criminology. And I got the position. And since then, it's just kind of completely shifted my life and my interests and my understanding of what I can do with my degree and what conservation holds. And it's just really, really an interesting field. And I'm really fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time. So at the moment, I'm applying to graduate programs and I'm looking to pursue a PhD So I can end up working at, say, like WCS or World Wildlife Fund or National Geographic and continue doing the work that I've been doing these past couple of years. That's amazing that you were given the opportunity to join this lab and explore the research field. It's true. A lot of people don't realize how many topics there are that people can research. And I'm happy that you were able to find this topic that resonates with you. Good luck on your future career and getting into grad school. And thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me. The sci Files is hosted by Chelsea Voodoo and Daniel Puentes on Impact 89FM. Thank you to our news director, Taylor Halterman, program director, Amber Konutsky, station manager, Joe Dandrin, and general manager, Jeremy Whiting. The sci Files can be found online on SciFiles.org and on your favorite podcast directory. If you're an MSU student and want to be featured on sci Files, or if you have any questions, you can contact us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth is in the science.